0: is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Hoover, your host and director of communications at the ACLU of PA. Deborah Archer is a professor at New York University School of Law where she is the co-faculty director of the Center on Race, Inequality, and the Law. Over the course of her career, Professor Archer has worked as an attorney at the ACLU and the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund. Now, after 12 years on the board of directors, she is the new president of the ACLU, and she is the first black person to serve as the organization's president. In this episode, you'll hear from Professor Archer. We'll talk about her vision for the organization, her early experience working with the ACLU of Pennsylvania in the 1990s, and how we keep going when things seem so difficult. This conversation was recorded on April 19th. Well, Professor Archer, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate uh, your your making yourself available, and to come on and tell folks about your, your new role at the ACLU.
1: Well, thank you for the invitation and the opportunity to spend time with you.
0: Yeah, so you're the new president of the National ACLU Board of Directors, and our National Executive Director, Anthony Romero, describes us as a noisy organization, (laughs) which of course naturally leads to the question, why did you want to do this job?
1: Yeah, I think there are a lot of moving pieces and levels to our work, many constituencies But we are noisy in the absolute best way, I think. And um, I wanted to be president because the ACLU is an organization that is important to me. It's been important to me for a very long time. Um, I started my legal career at the ACLU a little more than two decades ago, Um, started as a fellow, a Carpacan fellow with the ACLU and the National Legal Department. And back then, um, there was no racial justice. Program. So although Karpak and Fellows now spend their time with the ACLU Racial Justice Program, I worked in every department uh, in the ACLU National Legal Department. So I had this incredible grounding in civil rights and civil liberties that really has shaped my entire career. Uh, and I wanted to start my work at the ACLU in large part because I'm passionate about the issues the ACLU works on, many of which have touched my life personally and serving uh, as president and working with the board now during this time is an honor um, and an opportunity to give back to an organization that I think has given so much to me um, and to so many people. And it really is an incredible opportunity to serve the ACLU and to support the work of expanding and deepening our civil liberties and civil rights during what I think is a window of opportunity. Um, And I said, it starts with a passion for the issues the ACLU works on, many of which have touched my life personally, um, after I left the ACLU, I went on to work at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and now um, at NYU Law School. Um, and, but at every opportunity that I had, whenever there was a call, I was always happy uh, to come back and do work with the ACLU as cooperating attorney, as a member of the New York Civil Liberties Union, and in various roles on the, the national board. So this is really uh, incredible an incredible opportunity.
0: Well, we really appreciate the fact that you're willing to do it. And, and it's also notable that you're the eighth president of the ACLU, and you're the first Black president. What do you think that milestone means for you? And what do you think it means for the organization?
1: I appreciate that you um, say both of those things together, because at least it puts it in context. Another. Uh, situations where people hear that I am the the first Black president um, without hearing that we have only had seven presidents before. It takes on some, um, some new meaning. But I'm really proud to be a part of that history, even though I wish we had celebrated this milestone um, earlier. When Uh, People in the Black community experience success in our lives. We often say that we are our ancestors' wildest dreams. And I believe that and I have felt that um, because every time a person of color achieves one of these firsts, whether it is in government or civic leadership or business or politics, I think it honors the people who have come before and who have fought and led and organized and survived so that this country could be more free and so that I could be in this place and have this opportunity to serve and do the work that I'm honored to to do. So to become president of the ACLU, particularly in this era where Black women are continuing to change the national landscape through our leadership, uh, is an honor. And, And I think for many people, my election holds importance because the ACLU has been at the forefront of the fight for civil liberties in America for over hundred years, this adds another dimension to the story of who the ACLU is. And so I hope that my election will help people feel and believe um, even more so that the ACLU represents all of America. We um, say that we are fighting for an America where we the people means all of us. And that is certainly evident in all of the work that we do. I don't think anyone can deny that. Um, And I have always felt that personally, I felt connected to the ACLU uh, through the work and as an organization. But I don't think the same is always true for uh, many other folks, including other people of color. But we are now an organization where 60% of the members of the National Board of Directors identify as people of color. I am president, Uh, we have Anthony Romero as executive director, and we have across the country affiliates that are led by an incredible and diverse group of leaders, including uh, in Pennsylvania. So I hope that after my election, even more people will see themselves in the ACLU and look at us as an organization that is for them and also fighting for them too.
0: Well, I wanted to dive in a little more to your origin story. You're a Black woman in America, and you're also the daughter of immigrants. Why and how did you get involved in civil rights work?
1: Uh, yeah, I grew up in Connecticut as the child of Jamaican immigrants who really worked hard every day, yet they faced struggles to provide uh, for our family. So I was living in one of the richest states in the country, but we often didn't have the food that we needed, or in the winter we would have to wear coats inside because uh, we didn't have heat or because we didn't have hot water. Um, my parents faced intense discrimination. And I wanted to fight back against that discrimination and the challenge they faced, which I recognized were because they were black, because they were immigrant, um, because of our economic status, because they didn't go to college. And it was discrimination that they couldn't shield their children from. And um, I saw the way that so many systems came together in each and every moment to constrain our life outcomes, to eliminate choices, and to, to create new challenges. And so I knew I wanted to fight against those, those systems and they were systems that repeated throughout my life. Um, when I was a child, when I went to college, uh, one, of the first mem- uh, one of the first memories I have of college um, is still being really excited and proud that my family was celebrating me for being the first person in my family to go to college. And then during my freshman year, uh, someone slipped a racist note under my door calling me a racial slur and telling me to go home. Mm. Um, and that just seemed to be, unfortunately, I think a theme uh, in my life uh, and really drove me to wanting to to challenge racism. I think racism worked exactly the way it was designed to in my life, that every time I felt a sense of belonging, I felt a sense of joy or accomplishment, something would happen to remind me that this society did not believe that I was as worthy or as deserving as anyone else. In terms of getting involved with this work at the ACLU, I think a lot of my uh, friends and family were surprised when I told them that I was going to go work for the ACLU out of law school. They didn't believe that someone who was committed to racial justice could do uh, the work that they wanted to do um, at at the ACLU because they like um, so many others, and and me initially thought of the ACLU as solely a First Amendment organization, mm. organization focused on uh, speech and privacy, uh, which I believe is critically important work. But as a, lo- a young lawyer, I wanted to focus on everything, <laughs> right? right, and broad systemic equality issues. And as I said, the kind of issues that impacted my life on a daily basis. So uh, I was an intern at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. And I had an opportunity to work on a case, Chef versus O'Neill, which they were co-counseling with the ACLU. And that just opened up the door to me, learning more about all of the work of the ACLU and our embrace of the ideal that fighting for freedom and fighting for equality go in hand in hand, um, that the constitution's promises of liberty and equality are are linked. and the ACLU would give me an opportunity to work on the issues on both sides of that coin. Um, And so I just got so excited about the work and the possibility meeting the folks at the Connecticut affiliate and working with them. Uh, So I was very excited to uh, apply for the fellowship after after law school and to begin my career there. And it has been an incredible platform um, and education to continuing to do civil rights and civil liberties work throughout my career.
0: Well, I'm so glad you said that, uh, all of those things, because you know we continue to evolve as an organization, and I'm going to ask you a bit about the issues that you think are priorities as well as your vision. Um, but speaking of systems, I understand that you have a Pennsylvania connection from earlier in your career when you were a legal fellow with the ACLU. You were co-counsel in Doyle v. Allegheny County, which alleged that the public defender's office was not providing adequate representation. What What do you remember about that case?
1: Uh, you reached um, way back. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was Vic check. our legal yeah, director. He <laughs> and so when,
1: um, that was from the very beginning of my career, it was actually the first case I worked on as an attorney. Uh, wow. was case. Um, and so. I think the first thing I remember about working on that case was that it was the exact kind of work that I hoped to do, not just work that challenged um, inequality, but work that was at the intersection of multiple systems of inequality. And in that case, it was uh, work that challenged systemic racism, poverty, uh, the criminal legal system. And that case exposed me to the ways that I could Work to impact the criminal legal system to bring some level of fairness and equity to a system that I knew destroyed and was designed to destroy the lives of people, particularly those lo- of low income people of color, without actually working as a criminal defense attorney. And I'm also eternally grateful to Vic Waltek. I'm sure he has absolutely no recollection of working with me or any details, but working with him had such an impact on me as a young lawyer because of his passion for the work, uh, which I could feel in every meeting that we had, um, in every interaction, his grounding and connection and focus on the community in Pittsburgh. Um, And I felt like a celebrity at that point walking around (laughs) Pittsburgh with him uh, and the way that people wanted to engage with him and share their their problems, their concerns, and their ideas, and the way that he engaged with them in return. And then his incredible generosity with a young attorney who was stumbling her way through her first case and didn't know what she was doing. Um, Just really Vic's uh, generosity um, in guiding me as a young attorney trying to find my way. And so I've always appreciated uh, working with Vic and Robin Dahlberg uh, on that case very early on in my legal career.
0: Well, he clearly remembers you and remembers the case, because as soon as I said I'm talking with Deborah, he said, oh, you got to mention Doyle v. Allegheny County. <laughs>
1: I cannot believe you. Um, I cannot believe you remember that. But I'm really honored that he remembers me because I really um, I, I think about uh, his his work and his his work with me finally.
0: Well, in that case is such a good example of how the work. It really doesn't stop in a way because we've had issues recently with the Allegheny County Public Defender office so as soon as you make some progress you know the work continues to maintain it um let alone making it you know taking it even further
1: yeah i think that that's part of it in many ways it is the nature of progress that we make two steps forward one step back sometimes three steps forward two steps back or one step forward and three steps back Um, And so uh, unfortunately we continue to fight uh, so many of the same fights over and over again. And in some ways I think that that's uh, the way that discrimination is designed to keep us focused on maintaining, to to staying where we are rather than being able to devote the kind of attention and resources we need to truly move forward in a transformational and fundamental way. Um, So I'm I'm sorry to hear that you're still fighting those fights there today.
0: So, we are recording this on April 19th. And as you and I are speaking, uh, the closing arguments are happening in the Derek Chauvin trial. Last week was difficult. Dante Wright was killed by police in Minnesota. Video was released of Chicago police killing Adam Toledo, a 13 year old boy. We saw a video that was released of police in Virginia assaulting a military officer during a traffic stop. All of these victims were, all, all the victims in these cases were people of color. I could ask you about what this means, what, what, uh, what justice looks like, but I actually want to ask you a little bit of a different question. How do you keep going? And what's your message for people who are doing the work, who can feel despondent or cynical in this moment and in, and in moments like it?
1: Now, last week, um, this week, today, um, incre- were incredibly difficult, as has been the, the entire past year. Feels like there's no time to mourn or process one racial trauma before we're forced to move on to the next. But I think what's important is that we are moving on. Uh, We are focused on on fighting uh, because we can't sit in this moment. We can't accept the way things are. We have to find ways uh, to to move forward. And so I think the protests that we've seen consistently throughout the country uh, over the last year Um, have been a source of inspiration to help me move forward. I think they're a powerful reminder of the political power uh, and strength in our communities, uh, the power of protest and in making our voices heard. I think uprisings and protests throughout our history have always been a powerful way to both build power and demonstrate power, and in turn have always been a potent force to drive overdue reform and transformation of discriminatory policies and institutions. Um, This tradition includes rebellions by enslaved people who fought for their freedom. It includes Bloody Sunday when hundreds marched in Selma, Alabama, demanding the right to vote and helping to spur adoption of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, It includes urban uprisings in Watts and Newark and Detroit that led to the adoption of the Fair Housing Act. And it includes today and the protesters who continue to drive Conversation and action about the need to reimagine public safety, to demand that we not forget those who have died at the hands of police and are trying to ensure that their deaths were not in vain. I think I'm also blessed to be surrounded by young people. I have two teenage boys, one 17, one 15, but also I spend every day in the classroom engaging with young folks who are committed and dedicated to social justice. I work with uh, community organizations that are youth-led and um, feel the energy of the youth-led movement. They all give me energy because they are about the work, they are about transformation, they are about justice. Um, My children in particular give me motivation because I wanna help build a world that's worthy of them. America's journey towards justice, as we were just talking about, has been long and winding. And at times it can absolutely feel hopeless. But I continue to get up each day and insist on hope on my part, on their part. Uh, Hope that my sons won't have to worry over their children the way that I worry over them. Hope that uh, these young folks who are out here doing this work will help to create a world where justice is closer and the country truly and finally values them and their lives. And I believe that we're going to end up with a more just society because they're going to demand it um, and they're going to do the work to get us there. And finally, I get hope from my colleagues at the ACLU because I see the fierceness and love with which they pursue justice each and um, every day. And at the end of the day, I think we all move forward because we have no choice. These are tiring times, but um, it's the way of history with ebbs and flows. we can think back and uh, see all the ways in which advances is is met by resistance. Reconstruction led to Jim Crow. The civil rights era led to the Reagan era. The election of Barack Obama led to the election of Donald Trump. Um, Today, record political participation by voters of color has led to systemic disenfranchisement. Um, And like those who fought before us, I think we have to continue to fight for change in a vision of justice and equality, we may never see uh, in our lifetimes. I think when enslaved people pushed back against slavery, they could not envision that they themselves would ever experience freedom, but they still fought uh, so that those who came after them could live and be more free. Uh, a mentor of mine often says, We're sitting in the shade of trees we didn't plant, and we are drinking from wells we didn't dig. So I'm going to continue to do the work uh, to plant those trees and to dig those wells.
0: Really well said. I appreciate that and I I feel like the staff of the ACLU uh, our board of directors national level affiliate level our volunteers our supporters are almost hopeful by nature. If you, you wouldn't be able to do this work if you didn't think things could change.
1: That's right. That's 100%. Um and th- and I think that's why it takes so much energy from this amazing community and family of, of, of folks who are doing this work, who believe that they, they can make a difference, that they themselves um, can make change, that this organization can make change.
0: I wanted to ask you about your feeling about younger folks, and you, uh, you said some of it, but there was something else I wanted to ask you. In the blog post in which you were introduced as the new president, you said, younger folks engaged in this movement don't feel constrained by the losses of the past and they have imagination beyond belief. I think we can do ourselves a service by following their lead because they are fearless, they are creative, and they are not deterred by the past. Mm -hmm. You talked a little bit about how young people inspire you. Curious about your comment about how they're not constrained by the losses of the past. What did you mean by that?
1: Yeah, so I, I think that that to me just sums up the way that I, they don't feel constrained by the traditional paradigms we use to define rights and responsibilities or the silos in which we often view our work. I think they don't feel constrained by the traditional tools of advocacy uh, and think outside of those traditional tools. Um, Past civil rights and civil liberty losses don't inhibit their creativity. Uh, They see the spaces and the avenues for uh, for advocacy in between those, 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 those losses. They're willing to challenge those losses head on to revisit and reimagine those issues and and arguments. They're just passionate and demanding and relentless in the best possible way. And they are doing the work to reimagine justice so that change is real and meaningful for everyone, for every member of of the community, not just, just some of us. And so, as I said, I've been just so lucky each and every year to have this new community of mentors. And um, I am a law professor, but I think that I learn as much from my students as they do from me because they approach the work, they see the work um, through a, a you know, completely different lens and bring uh, new energy, new vision and a new way of engaging that I think helps to make me a better advocate each and every day.
0: My wife is an educator. She's been in K-12 education for 22 years. And she says all the time about how kind this current generation is.
1: They are kind and they are thoughtful. They take care of each other. And I have just appreciated the way that they have tried to take care of me, reminding me that rest is revolutionary and rest is resistance and um, the importance of Of self care and uh, taking care of every member of the community, I think that's absolutely right.
0: So, what do you think are the biggest issues that the ACLU needs to tackle right now?
1: Yeah, I don't even know if you have enough time. (laughs) (laughs) How long you want to sit here and and chat with me? Um, Because that's that's a huge question. The ACLU has to rise to the moment, just as we rose to the moment following the election of Donald Trump, and we have spent, as you know. most of the past four years on the defense of trying to stop this retrenchment and rollback that we were talking about, these efforts to undermine fundamental civil rights and civil liberties and our institutions. And um, we had to challenge laws that targeted vulnerable and marginalized communities. But now we have to do incredibly important but difficult work to address that toxic legacy, including to help rebuild our laws, our practices, our institutions, but also those communities that were harmed and targeted. And we also have an opportunity here uh, to expand civil rights and civil liberties because we weren't where we needed to be four years ago. There was work that needed to be done um, then. Uh, So now the work begins, I think, to hold the Biden administration accountable for their obligation and their oath to uphold the constitution. Uh, In terms of where we start, I think we start everywhere as we as we always do. The work of the ACLU covers the waterfront and is gonna to continue to do that. Uh, but in terms of identifying a few priority areas, I think, um, I think that has to include criminal justice work, working to end the war on drugs, reducing the role of police in our communities, uh, re-envisioning and reinvesting in a different model of public safety, uh, ending mass incarceration, ending the federal death penalty. I think that has to include immigration work. Donald Trump was able to systematically undermine our immigration laws and principles of fundamental fairness because our immigration system is fundamentally broken. And so we have to do work to ensure the new administration undoes past damage, but also push to fundamentally reimagine our immigration system. Uh, And of course, we have to hold the Biden administration accountable and ensure that they roll back those uh, Trump era policies, but also ensure the reunification of, and restitution uh, for separated families. I think in the area of LGBTQ, there's work to create more protections for LGBTQ people in all realms of society, from employment to housing, uh, to schools, to prisons. And also with the escalating attacks on transgender people across the country, this work has to include the fight for trans justice. I think there's important work to be done on reproductive freedom. We're seeing um, a lot of pushback and uh, test cases floating in light of the shifting demographics on the Supreme Court, the more conservative Supreme Court. Uh, In voting rights, I think the direct barriers to political participation that we've seen is an incredibly dangerous challenge to our democracy because it reflects the desire of some people to hold on to power completely and indefinitely and granting access to others only when it serves their purpose. And so this fight includes fighting the current wave of voter suppression laws, but also supporting and pushing for efforts to make it easier for everyone to participate in our democracy. And also in, under the umbrella of participating in our democracy. I think there's a lot of work to do to shore up the right to protest, to challenge the threats uh, to the right to protest in various forms, including bills popping up in state legislatures across the country and through um, police tactics. Privacy in the digital age, our work has to continue to focus on preserving civil rights and civil liberties as technology changes, um, and as technology changes society. We have to defend freedom of expression online, advance Fourth Amendment protections against high-tech government surveillance and challenge discriminatory uses of artificial intelligence. And then finally, I would highlight um, that I think racial justice has to be at the forefront of our work. We are at a point in this nation's history where it's clear that we have a responsibility to do the work to dismantle the architecture of racial inequality that has survived for centuries. And in February, we launched our systemic equality agenda which I think is a powerful move in the right direction, deepening and expanding our racial justice work. So, so much work ahead. So yeah. much
0: to Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and you had mentioned earlier about the idea when you started at the ACLU, how folks thought of it as just a First Amendment mm-hmm. organization. And you know, there's so much debate about the direction of the organization. And I just think it's so important to point out that these are not either or choices. You know, you can believe in free speech and recognize that other important civil liberties and civil rights are equal to the value of free speech.
1: That's right. I think we have to remind folks that we can be and are an organization that cares about the First Amendment, but we also care about the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendment and other important principles. And I think the deepening and expanding of our racial justice work uh, at this point in time is in line with the way the ACLU has responded to other inflection points in our nation's history. We deepened and um, expanded our immigrat- immigrants' rights work after the election of Donald Trump and his Muslim ban. We deepened our work on privacy and religious freedom after September 11th. And we deepened and expanded our voting rights work after the Shelby versus Holder uh, decision ushered in this tsunami uh, voter disenfranchisement effort. So I think this, this is Uh, certainly in line with the tradition of um, the work of the ACLU to rise to to the moment.
0: So part of being a leader uh, means having some vision. Um, Five years from now, the ACLU is where you want it to be. What does that look like?
1: Yeah, I hope that we'll be able to look back and see that our work was not only a part of this movement that we're all witnessing and living through, but that we learned from this movement and that we allowed it to shape our work both what we do, but really importantly, how we do it and and who does it. I hope that we'll be able to look back and see that we engaged and supported constituencies that have not traditionally seen themselves as ours or seen themselves in our work and have expanded the reach of the ACLU in that way. I hope that we'll be farther along in building power and capacity in our affiliates Um, and supporting the important work that they do on the the front lines each and every day, Uh, really kind of embracing the power that exists in being this nationwide organization, uh, getting resources to where they're needed the most. And I hope that we will be an organization where who we are as an organization fully reflects and embodies our values.
0: Well, Professor Archer, thank you so much for taking the time. One of these days, we will be out of these Zoom boxes, (laughs) and we will be in person, so I'm really looking forward to, to that opportunity where we can have the conversation in person.
1: I absolutely welcome that and look forward to meeting you in person. Thank you.
0: That's Professor Deborah Archer, the new president of the ACLU. You can follow her on Twitter at Deborah N. Archer. There's a primary election coming in Pennsylvania on May 18th. Be sure that you know your rights when voting by visiting ACLUPA.org vote. The ACLU of PA is also in the midst of a campaign to educate voters about magisterial district judges, the low-profile high-impact officials in the criminal legal system. Visit ACLUPA.org/MDJ for more information. If you're in Allegheny County, several candidates responded to ACLUPA's questionnaire. You can read their answers to our questions on that webpage ACLUPA.org/MDJ. That brings episode 60 to a close. The audio editor of Speaking Freely is Freddie Foulet. Our video editor is Cambria Lee. Our music is from bensound.com. The executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Schuford. I'm Andy Hoover, the host, writer, and director of this podcast. Until next time, be healthy and be